Hi, this is Phil. This is an off week for the free flagship show, which means we are posting an extra show and an essay over in our Patreon, like we do in every off week. Every now and then, JF and I like to post a particularly good Patreon extra in the flagship feed, so those of you who might be on the fence about signing up for our Patreon can hear for yourselves just how hard we're partying over behind the paywall. And this is just such an episode. It's an extended riff on the figure of the spiral versus the closed circle that our known friend, author of Meditations on the Tarot, develops in his chapter on the star, which was the topic of our most recent episode. You can think of this as an extended footnote to that episode, or perhaps as a particularly spirited side quest in the epic fantasy video game known as Weird Studies. Putting out an off-week episode is also a way of telling you one last time about the first-ever live Weird Studies event on Monday, May 23rd at Illuminated Brewworks in Chicago. We're celebrating the launch of Weird Studies Black IPA, and I, for one, plan on drinking a lot of it. Doors open at 7pm, and after a certain amount of sinister modular synth improvisation, you will be able to hear myself, Meredith, and J.F., the latter via Zoom, talking about Strange Brews and possibly the movie Strange Brew, if I can convince J.F. and Meredith to watch it. It is a very silly movie, I admit, but the filmmakers used some of the same exterior locations as John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, and that's got to count for something. Anyway, if you want to come, and you do, buy your tickets now at Eventbrite. Look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Owing to some pedophogging Illinois state law, IBW can't sell tickets at the door, so you'll have to buy them online. Tickets are $12 or $20 for a ticket plus a dope-ass poster for this event. Okay, that's all for now. Enjoy the extra, think about subscribing to our Patreon, and come to our show if you're in the neighborhood. Two, four. Right. I left the slate in the episode with Duncan Barford that's coming out next week. Just because the conversation hinged on the slate right from the beginning. Yeah. So it, I mean that makes sense. Yeah. Man, I really like that guy. I like that guy here. so much. He was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. For listeners, we recorded a show. Was it last week? Yeah. Yeah. Last week we recorded a show with Duncan Barford. He's an occultist. And uh, psychotherapist. psychotherapist from the UK. Um, Brighton. From right. Brighton, England. And yeah. Formerly one half of the duo act with Alan Chapman, which back in the early days of, uh, I don't want to say the early days of the internet, but like the earlier days of the internet, they had a wonderful site called Baptists Had. In the golden age of blogging. In the golden age of blogging. That's yeah. right. And uh, Duncan himself has gone on to do so. He has a wonderful little book that 
I would recommend to anyone's attention called Occult Experiments in the Home, which is also the title of his podcast. Right, right. In fact, actually, there's a sequel, even more Occult Experiments in the Home, which is, I think, self-published. I have a copy. Um, you can find it online. But I love his writing. He has a little bit of Lionel Snell's kind of tone and ability to talk about dread aspects of the occult in a way that just makes it sound sort of friendly and interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I would recommend his writing to anybody listening, but also, of course, his podcast, which is uh, one of my absolute favorite Same here. things. Not even favorite podcast, just favorite things. Yeah. It's like, for the cost of nothing, every time you dial up an episode, I promise you will learn something and something of importance. Yeah. Of how many things can that be said in our modern world? Yeah. Yeah. He's a treasure. Um, and we got lots going on. So we've got that coming out next week. And of course, next week on the 23rd of May. On Monday. Uh, we're recording a live episode in Chicago. Um, so before- At Illuminated Brew Works. Exactly. Illuminated Brew Works. There's a, a beer being launched. Weird Studies Black IPA. And you're all invited. Anyone who's, you know, lives close enough to Chicago to uh, justify the journey is- more than welcome to join us. However, one detail that we need to underscore is that tickets need to be purchased in advance of the event on Eventbrite. And uh, where can they find that link? Well, you can just go to Eventbrite and in the search box, type in weird studies and it will lead you directly to the page for our tickets. Go. Also, on multiple tweets in the formidable Weird Studies Twitter account yep. curated by yours truly, one of the finest Twitter feeds of modern times. I agree. I'm kidding. It's just, I don't know how to Twitter. I'm not good at it. I suck at Twitter. <laughs> I suck at Twitter. Well, my kids tell me that all the time. We both like, suck Dad, at Twitter. You're going, you're going off brand. I'm like, going off brand is my brand. <laughs> Whoa, how about that? <laughs> so... Uh, Anyway, so there's that. There's also in the, the subreddit, I posted the link there. That's right. If you go in the Discord, which you should, because it's a fucking party scene there, 24-7. Um, You'll find the it's link there, there, I think, more than one place. Yeah. So. Great. And the tickets are $12. Or if you want to pay $20, you'll get a free poster. Uh, Illuminated Brewworks, um, their designer, what was his name? We, he just sent Wait. us. Yeah. We'll Wait, find his name. I'm going to look it up. Fuck. It was in... I should have memorized this. I should have had this tattooed on my flesh. Jason Pritchett. Ah, there we go. Yeah. He's the designer at Illuminated Brewworks, and he has designed a fantastic, fantastic poster that evokes the best in mid-1970s publishing. <laughs> It's true, it yeah, does. It's super awesome. It looks like the cover of a book that we're not cool enough to write. Yeah, exactly. And yet, yeah. and yet we have a book deal to write that exact book. <laughs> How will we do it? How that's an interesting that's an interesting challenge. Write a book that's cooler than a book you're capable of writing. That's the challenge. Well, I was thinking about this from the point of view of like fiction writing, not that I've ever made any serious and sustained attempt at fiction writing. But one thing I remember hearing about fiction is that the one thing you can't imagine is somebody who's smarter than you are. Yeah. That's the problem in role-playing games too. Like if you have an intelligence of eight, 
and you roll up a character with an intelligence of 18, how do you play that? <laughs> like you can play a character who's very how strong. Indeed. Yeah, you can't. So uh, it's the same. Yeah, As an author, you can't. There are tricks, in, I think, in the fiction game. There are tricks for evoking a kind of truthiness, a kind of like, you know, you can talk about all the character knows about without knowing it yourself. But yeah, you can't write something smarter than you are. And, you know, this rule, which exists in fiction, is even more true in nonfiction. You can't write a book that's smarter than you are. And yet, so many people have written books that are smarter than them. In fact, maybe that's one of the conditions for writing a great book is that it's smarter than you are. That's a really good point. Because I was just thinking about something Philip K. Dick said about the character of Angel Archer in The Divine Invasion, one of his last novels. Yeah. And Angel Archer was his best character. I mean, he knew it when he wrote the book. He was like, ah, finally, I'm writing a novel that has like a strong novelistic character. Cause right. you know, a lot of his characters are almost, um, uh, they're almost not characters. I yeah. mean, I don't know, maybe that's an excessive way of putting it, but in any event, you know, Angel Archer is a fully three dimensional character. And he was saying like, Angel Archer has different ideas about things than I do. Like Angel Archer could figure out stuff that I couldn't figure out. Yeah. And basically saying he had written a character who was smarter than himself. Uh, and, you know, Philip K. Dick said a lot of things, but I'm actually inclined to take him at his word on that well, he, score. He's absolutely right. I mean, it's true. This is something we can't really account for, but it is obviously true. Like, think about one of your more exquisitely detailed dreams you've had, you know? Mm. You know, you might have dreamt of this strange architectural space with all these details. Who hasn't had that dream where you're, you're dreaming of a space of such... It's so meticulously detailed that you know that you're not an architect. I mean, unless you are an architect, right. but if you're not an architect, and yet you, when you dream, you somehow are able to conjure up images of worlds that are incredibly complex and sophisticated. And so we're all a bit smarter than we think we are, at least the unconscious is. And if you can write a, a novel, if you can tap into that, as Philip K. Dick claimed to do with uh, Angel Archer, then you can actually write things you don't know and that are true. <laughs> you can you can create a persona in your fiction that is more intelligent than you. It's not it's not out of the realm of the possible. It seems like that maybe that's exactly what happens when um when fiction writing is really happening. Yeah. It's the uh it's the spirit of the spiral again. I've been thinking a lot about spirals cuz come up a bit in recent conversations we've had, not only the tarot episodes, the Wheel of Fortune, and now the star, where it comes up because Valentin Tonberg, aka our known friend, author of Meditations on the Tarot, brings up that figure repeatedly. That to him is the very image of creative evolution yeah. or cosmic evolution. Yeah. Um, but it's a valuable symbol of something that we stand for, like this show. Yeah. Something we're all about and something that I find to be fairly systematically denied in the world of the educated modern, the, you know, the, the college world where I ply my trade as a teacher, the world of arts and intellect, of institutions 
universities and art galleries and swanky publications like the New York Review of Books. like Science Institutes and all that. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in this whole kind of world of arts and ideas and opinions is all kind of thoroughly overtaken by the idea that... Uh, What's the phrase? What's the expression from True Detective? Time, Time is, is a, flat a flat circle. circle. Yeah. Yeah. Originally from Nietzsche. Or for that matter, all of human endeavor is a flat circle. You put in a fixed number of inputs and you get out the exact same amount that you put in. You can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and smush them together to make your creative idea, but your creative idea is only going to ever be A plus B. A plus B is never going to amount to something more than just A plus B. That idea of creativity where a creative idea is only ever the reshuffling of known elements into new Recombinations. Yeah. 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 That, that would be the, the, the flat circle, the closed circle. And the spiral is the idea that somehow there is some kind of alchemy that happens in the creative process where you end up with something that is qualitatively new. Yeah. So you might combine any of the 26 letters, but you end up with a totally new word. In fact, you might end up with a completely new letter. <laughs> uh, like yes. the, 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 the antithesis of what Ecclesiastes in the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun. We mentioned this in the, the episode on the, on the star. It's that it's the precise opposite of that truth is that everything is new, you know, behold, I make all things new. So like uh, the spiral is, yes, you're moving along a certain set pattern. For example, you might be writing a book of science fiction. So you are conforming, adhering to the strictures of that genre to a certain extent. And yet, if you're doing the spiral, if you're, if you're really creating you will reinvent the genre. The genre will appear again at another level of the circle. A, a new, the circle is open, so it's moving up or down or however you want to picture the spiral moving. And all of a sudden you're at a different place. So it's, you're, you're not just creating another instance of the science fiction novel. You're reinventing the science fiction novel. And that's what all the great science fiction novels do is that they reinvent the very genre they operate in. There's always something new coming into the equation. It's like uh, Plato's whole idea of learning comes from that. Like Plato didn't believe that learning consisted of reading tons of stuff and then synthesizing what you've read and then presenting it. Because ultimately all that that amounts to is reshuffling pre-existing ideas. Plato's idea of learning was that through dialogue, you know, I have a bunch of information in my head. You have a bunch of information in your head. We dialogue, we talk to one another, we share this information, we compare it, we debate, but then something completely new comes out of it that neither of us had in our heads before. That's the platonic yep. synthesis and that's the new coming in and that you can't account for that on the flat circle view of things. You can't yep. account for, all you can do at best is say, well, that looks new, but in the end, it's just a new, a new iteration of that old thing, you know, and that's, you'll often see that. In uh, certainly in philosophy, for example, people will go, well, Descartes' argument for God is just St. Anselm's argument for God. Everything that's new about it, they'll just edit out and try to find the old in it and then reduce the new to the old constantly. And this yes. is something we do, I think, for defensive reasons. Some part of us doesn't like the spiral because it's scary, because we don't know what lies around the corner. We don't know what right. comes next. 
Yeah, like so much of the ethos of control lies behind that flat circle view. I think of that biblical line, be he wise as serpents and... Innocent as doves. Innocent as doves. The wisdom of the serpent is, you know, the wisdom of our workaday world. And that depends upon the ability to predict things from Mm. past occasions. And so if you're saying, oh, well, things that have happened to you in the past, like think about Philip K. Dick, and we could say, well, Angel Archer couldn't be smarter than Philip K. Dick because Angel Archer is but a projection of various things that have happened to Philip K. Dick. And you can't project something that didn't happen to you, right? Right. Um, But then clearly what we're saying is otherwise, that there's this wild card, that something could be added simply by virtue of those known things being put in play one more time, one more time around the track, and yet we find ourselves introducing this new element. Well, if you can't predict that, you can't control it. And everything, it seems to me, in our civilization comes down to this ethos of control. The things that our civilization likes are the things that render things amenable to control. The things that our civilization doesn't like are the things that it doesn't, which is why I say that even in the institutions of arts and the intellect that might nominally be places where we would find our our staunchest allies or we would find support for the kinds of things that we like, you know, maybe to some extent, but not not as not 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 as much as I would like at any rate. Yeah. Because of course I I I crave world domination. But like <laughs> speaking of the ethos of control. You know, like those institutions also like they function on the same administrative model, the same model of capital A administration where extra systemic wild cards you want to weed those out at the front end. Anomalies are to be ironed out. Any anomalies, any wrinkle should be ironed out. Like the, the whole, the scientific method is predicated upon the elimination of wild cards and wild factors. Yeah. And the best argument you can make for the ethos of control is that it is rooted in some kind of cosmic fear. Or else the only reason for the ethos of control would be some kind of megalomaniacal thirst for power, which is also obviously a factor in the world, but it doesn't explain everything. It needs to be rooted somehow in a fear. You want to control because when you're controlling, you're safe. When you can control, you're safe. You know what's going on. You don't have to deal with, you know, two episodes ago, what we were calling radical mystery. Mm. If you've eliminated the possibility that there is some kind of radical mystery. Like Mayasu in his book yeah. at one point proclaims that he has done away with the very idea of mystery. He has provided the answer to the question, why is there something instead of nothing? He has answered definitively for no reason. And I think that that's where Mayasu starts. That's the fault line in his, in, well, there's, I'm getting into this with my, my I'm, I've got this on my mind. I, don't, I won't get into the details right now. But the point is that the elimination of mystery is what the tyrant wants. But the tyrant is always motivated, as the Greeks knew well, first and foremost, by a fear, fear of the loss of control, fear of the son, the, you know, the wayward son who will come back and dethrone him, usurp him, take his rightful place. And so if you look at it like that, 
then we could be a little bit more charitable towards the modern um, yeah, fear, true. Uh, the more modern uh, aversion to, to the unknown and to, to mystery. Um, and I think that that charitable spirit will help us, I think, maybe understand it and get past it. You know, we have to, we have to grow the balls we need to face cosmic mystery. Yeah, this is a, a healthy thought because what I find unhelpful is a kind of reflexive anti-modernity stance that often curdles into a sort of reactionary stance. Yeah, kind of atavism, um, yeah. One thing I've always liked about our conversations is that as much as we beat up on the modern and on moderns, I mean, first of all, I don't think we ever exempt ourselves from the condition of being moderns. I don't think we're trying to talk like we're not part of the thing that we are decrying. Um, but also something you've said repeatedly, the problem is not that we're modern. The problem is we're not modern enough. Right. Um, narrowly, I could say that this is an idea that allows us to understand modernity as... Uh, as Jürgen Habermas put it, an incomplete project. Right. And a project whose final consummation would involve actually coming to terms with a lot of these anxieties that we talk about. Mm -hmm. But also, I like this phrase more broadly because it almost sort of contains a promise. Yeah. Like a present wrapped up under the tree on Christmas morning. You know? Yeah that there is something implicit in the modern that we don't understand yet. And only with the full unfolding of the modern will it become available to us or knowable by us. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I think that's exactly it. And um, the reason I keep harping on Meyasu is because I do think he touched on something really central in that process doesn't go there. He too shrinks from it, you know, <laughs> when he sees it. But I think if we were only able to go into that, it's like, it's like when we talk about nihilism, right? And we've been a little bit too flippant sometimes, I think, or at least I have about nihilism, because there's something to reckon with in that. If we can go mm. really into it, maybe we can get, this is the kind of gambit in the course I'm doing and it's not too late, people, if you want to, you know, you can watch the pre-recorded past lectures and jump in anytime. But anyways, the gambit is that by going all the way into that black iron prison, right, or into that white whale, I'm using the two metaphors differently, but if you go all the way in, you might just get everything back at the end. You might just get mm. the enchanted cosmos right back. Like in a fantasy story you know, like never ending story when everything is lost at the end. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, Bastion, the main character gets it all back. It all comes back yeah. because he was willing to give it all up. You know, it's like the cross, you know, if you're willing to just accept this passion, you go through it into the dark, you might, you might just stay there. You might lose everything. But it's only by risking that and by acknowledging the possibility that you may actually for real lose it all that you can get through to the other, yes. get out the other end. And I strongly agree. Yeah. That's kind of an archetypal thing. Well, I think that's an important thing also for, I mean, we've been talking about the hazards of the spiritual path 
we talk about this a bit with Duncan. That's going to be in our next flagship episode. One of the things that we're talking about in meditation or spiritual practice generally is that it can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet also in exactly the way you just described is precisely by offering yourself up to, and we don't even have to say danger necessarily, just the unknown. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, there's no informed consent to spiritual life. Uh, but the willingness to offer up everything is itself the key yeah. that unlocks every door. That spirit of giving. You know, actually, I can kind of connect this also, like tie this back to where we started, thinking about the open spiral or the, the, uh, the, the open end of the closed circle, right? So, you know, you start off with a closed circle and you make a little cut and you bend one of the ends of the circle outwards a little bit and all of a sudden you've got a spiral, right? Um, I was thinking about, this came up in the fan discord recently. Somebody had published an article about the dangers of meditation. That is a recognizable genre where people say, Sometimes in somewhat of a spirit of a product liability lawsuit, like, oh, you thought you were going to be getting something that would make you calmer and happier and help your depression and blah, blah, blah. But actually, (laughs) there are these risks that you were not told about. Now you need to sue the Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, or failing that, the person holding the retreat that you flipped out at. Um, yeah. And people do sometimes flip out on retreat. I'm not making light of that. It's true. It is, in fact, true that you can flip out on a retreat. Um, so, like, if you were approaching meditation in the spirit of the closed circle, which is a spirit of kind of modern utility, yeah, you know, maybe the kind of mindfulness-based stress reduction, kind of secularized light, L-I-T-E, Buddhism. And I'm not talking shit about that, because I think that MBSR is helpful to a lot of people, including people I know. But at the same time, like, if you're going in the spirit of the closed circle, um, how how to put this? This idea was so clear in my head a second ago. Um... Well, if you believe that it ends there, I mean, I don't know if this is what you mean, but if you, if you go into anything with the spirit of the flat circle and reality is actually a spiral, mm-hmm. well, then you're, you're going to be un, unbeknownst to yourself. You're going to be running along a spiral. So you'll end up in places you're not expecting. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Yeah. You might end up relieving your stress, but at what cost what what else will come into the picture you know like right yeah yeah sorry i didn't want to interrupt you no saying, no 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 please yeah you're no, doing better than i am no no, no i mean uh, 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 you know if the world were a closed space a fully knowable mappable googleable uh spaceship then the ethos of control would be completely warranted if the world is not like that, and it seems to me like everything in life tells us that the world is not like that, then to adopt that attitude without allowing that little break in the circle that would permit it to become something it isn't at this moment, right? Spiral mm-hmm. out. Then you're, you're kind of 
for sure doomed. Like, <laughs> like you, you are. <laughs> I'm kind of bringing this into a Pascalian place. It's like the wager is, what will your life be like if you act as though reality were a spiral instead of a flat circle? And I think that the answer that Pascalian would give to that is that you win either way, even if the world is a flat circle, but you act as though it's a spiral. You'll come up with novel recombinations of old things. You'll allow yeah. yourself. But if you are living You'll be in, emboldened if, to experiment. You'll, exactly. So that, you'll be innovative, quote unquote, you know? Right. You'll be, you'll come up with a revolutionary razor, you know? Yeah. And even if it isn't really revolutionary, and even if you, all you're doing is reshuffling known elements... At least you were emboldened to do it and are probably doing it better than other people yes. and making money at it. Exactly. And so you win. Yeah, exactly. So that's the pragmatic argument for it. If the world is a spiral and you act as though it's a flat circle, well, then you will, within one revolution of the circle, you will not know where you are anymore. And you'll have to pretend like you're still at the previous level when in fact you're elsewhere. And so you'll be applying, your ethos of control will be precariously hanging at the edge of an abyss because your ethos of control will be predicated upon things that are not true anymore. So the Pascalian answer is, no matter what reality is like, live it as though it were a spiral. Live as though meaning and creativity and magic were fundamental realities. Because you win either way, you know, if you do that. I think that's maybe a way yeah. of framing it. Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful way of framing it. Um, you know, to get back to the question of like the modern and how we are not in fact anti-modern, even though we're always spitting tacks about the modern. I can tell you one thing about the modern that I have been appreciating greatly just lately. Hearing aids. Hmm. Yeah. I need to tell the people about the medical miracle that is hearing aids and not just hearing aids like the ones that Gordon Cole wears in Twin Peaks, the big fat pink earpiece with the thick wire hanging out of it. That's some ancient technology at this point, right? Okay. So like I am losing my hearing. It's genetic. Um, it's, I've been really careful over the years with my hearing. I'm a musician and so I've always tried to protect my hearing, but uh, the fact is, there's absolutely nothing I can do about this. People in my family start going deaf in their 50s, and I am in my early 50s. So what's happening is that the cilia, the little hairs in your ear that respond to vibrations and transmit those vibrations as electrical impulses to your brain, um, while I have a thick and luxurious head of hair, <laughs> I have male pattern baldness or at least some kind of pattern baldness in my ear cilia. Mm. It's getting a little thin up on top there. I'm losing the top end of my hearing. And the thing about losing your hearing is that you kind of don't know what you don't know. It happens incrementally. And after a while, there's just a bunch of shit you're not hearing anymore. And you just accept that's how the world sounds. So give you an example when I got hearing aids last week and I stuck them in my ears, one of the first things I noticed was all the birds, so many birds. And in recent years, I realized I had had this thought 
that there were more birds when I was young. Because I would go for a walk and there's, I don't, I hear like one bird. I'm like, boy, that must be a lonely bird. Not so many birds around. Like the anymore. one on the star card. Yes. Yes. That, that's, that's the one bird that's been tweeting. That, yeah. That continues to hold it down <laughs> after all these years. I mean, it's like a childish mistake. Like, it isn't that the birds went away. It's that I couldn't hear them anymore because bird song is very high pitched. Uh, and in so many ways and capacities, I just quickly realized, like, how profound it is to get your hearing back when you've lost it or, like, get some of your hearing back. So, like, for example... It's not just being able to hear birds. It's like when I'm walking through my neighborhood and my ears now can pick up birdsong from here, there, and everywhere, I become much more aware of the auditory sphere around me. You could visualize it as a, like a big dome or something mm. surrounding me as I walk. Um, that has expanded immensely, but also I have a much more faithful and precise auditory picture of where things are within that space, within that dome of awareness. Like the sounds of individual birds poke out very obviously to me, not only that they're singing, but where they are in relation to one another, which means that I have a very clear idea of where I am in relationship to them. Mm. So the sense of being body occupying a three-dimensional space with other bodies, that sense of having a kind of, even if you like, interdependency with all beings mm. there, I just kind of put that in Buddhist speak, uh, that is an acoustical property. Right. That's an aspect of your experience as a hearing being. And I'm realizing this is why people say that deafness is a profoundly isolating, like socially isolating, a very lonely condition. Because even without knowing it, without noticing it, um, I was walking around for the last couple of years with my hearing flattened out, you know, so like the top part sawn off. And without knowing it, my sense of connection to the world had shrunk palpably, wow. flattened. And it's not just in space, it's also in music. Like when you listen to a piece of music, music has a kind of space too, a virtual space set up by its texture. So if there's a song I've been listening to, an old song by Massive Attack called Unfinished Sympathy, and it has this great acoustic string sound, bowed strings, and you have like bowed string bass, it's a great bass sound. And there's a lot of high percussion, like kind of metal percussion. And so there's this sort of yawning chasm between right. the rich velvety bowed bass and the, and the high percussion. It's kind of right? cathedral-like space, you know, that opens yeah. this vertical space, yeah. And, and so losing hearing on the upper end doesn't just make things more muffled, it actually squashes the space flat. It yeah. collapses the space. And so the morning after I got these things, I stuck them in my ear, went out to the kitchen, made a cup of coffee, and I listened to that song, Massive Attacks, Unfinished Sympathy. And I was just emotionally overwhelmed by the realization that this sort of glittering, technicolor, jeweled cathedral space opened up in front of me simply by virtue of the fact that I can hear the metal percussion better. Wow. All my low pitch 
response is just fine. It's just upper end stuff. So all of this is to say, it's not just that I can hear better. There are qualities in existence itself that are amplified by being able to hear properly. And this is a gift I was given. Like a gift for the gods. Like uh, a pre-modern people would view something like this truly as a godlike gift. Yeah. Like, like a miracle. You know, some, yeah, like something out of fucking Greek mythology or something. Yeah. Well, something certainly out of the New Testament. I mean, he, yeah. he, that's literally what, what he did, was he cured the, the blind and he made the blind see and the deaf hear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the oh, whole yeah, point. That's right. That, got, they, that's, that, that was a plot point in that book. I remember now. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, lit, it's literally a miracle. But it's a miracle yeah. that was made possible by our trust that a thorough and skeptical investigation of the processes of nature could yield a knowledge that we could not fathom at the time. You know, a text, a text that's worth reading, it's a wonderful text, is uh, Francis Bacon's The Great Instauration, which is was his introduction to um, Novum Organum, his big masterpiece there. And he sets out, he's like, at that point, he knew nothing that we know now. Like, he, he had no science. All he had was this feeling that the creator made the universe in such a way that we can know it. And if we just, instead of, of relying on dead Greeks for our basic principles, why don't we just look with our eyes, touch with our hands, listen with our ears, and we will find things that we could not imagine were the case. And that's exactly what happened. That's the magic of modernity. The problem with modernity is that it can't account for this Parmenidian alignment of our thought with nature. The yeah. real miracle is the fact that we can do science. That's the part that we can't come to terms with. But we must come to terms with it because we've proven it true, as your yeah. hearing aids <laughs> demonstrate. Yeah. yeah. And the miracle sticks around. Yeah. Right? It's not a one and done miracle. Like the miracle is that the universe is such that we can understand it using the language and techniques of science. Yeah. But it's not just a one and done deal where it's like, okay, it's an enabling condition. Miraculously, there's this enabling condition that has allowed us to understand. It's like that miracle remains sedimented in everything that science is capable of doing. So, like hearing aids. Yeah. Science has led me to the point of being able to have an experience that is, if you ask me, a straight up spiral type experience. Right. Like that experience of connection, of uh, interdependence. Of meaning. Yeah, of I'll... meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, science, for this miracle, an absolute fucking miracle and I am not speaking figuratively or sentimentally. I am using the word miracle in a specific, targeted, and I believe 100% accurate sense. <laughs> 